as we continue through the Beatitudes, I am so excited and blessed to be able to talk about hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matt got all the difficult ones. I get the easy one. That makes things a little bit more fun for me. Before we begin, I want to just read through the passage we're going to cover this morning. It's a long one, so bear with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Amen. As I was preparing this message, part of it while I was away at camp, part of it a little bit before then, I was trying to understand how to connect the dots. I didn't understand really why this one was where it was in the Beatitudes when I first started. But as I studied, a question came to my mind. I want to share that question with you. I'm going to ask you to internally ponder this question and be honest with yourself because this is a tough question. But the question is, what is the thing that you desire most? What is the thing that is foremost on your thoughts the foremost on your ideas, what is centrally focused in your life. I heard a pastor one time say that if you show me a person's calendar and bank account statements, I will show you their desires. Because we invest our time and our money and our energy into the things that we desire the most. To be honest, I wish I could answer the Sunday school answer with Jesus every time. But last time I checked, I am still a sinner in need of grace. And so in those shortcomings, I must rely heavily upon the Holy Spirit to guide me, to direct me, to push my heart towards Christ. I cannot do it in my own strength. As we dig into the points this morning, I want to make one caveat. We must be careful in reading this verse to take it in its fullest context, all of the Beatitudes. Because as a standalone, we have a danger of imposing upon ourselves some religious standards, not heart standards. And I think that that's exactly the issue that Jesus was talking about when he was going through the Beatitudes. I'm not sure if you've caught it, but did you see that each of these Beatitudes builds on the previous one? They are interconnected. 
You cannot get to verse 6 unless you first begin with verse 3. Jesus is laying a foundation about being poor in spirit. Matt did a phenomenal job articulating that that is spiritual bankruptcy. Spiritually speaking, we are destitute. And from that destitute state, we can truly mourn with a holy mourning. But not just a mourning for our own sins, but a mourning for the sins that we see around us in society today, knowing that the weight with which that sin was done was done to our Lord and Savior. That that affects us too. But then from that, we can be, my translation says gentle. I prefer the translation that says humble or meek. It takes great humility to acknowledge that I am a broken sinner in need of saving grace, interacting with broken sinners in need of saving grace. And from that foundation, we see this desire for righteousness, this hungering and this thirsting. It's important for us to remember that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. We must recognize that our greatest need and anyone's greatest need is salvation through Jesus Christ. That can only come when we are forced into the realization of that need. If I were to come to you and tell you that you won... I would hope your first question would be, won what? Without understanding what you have won, there is no rejoicing. Cool, I'm a winner. But what if my winning was a job that I did not want? Was a broken, dilapidated money pit of a home? What if it was something not good at all? Congratulations, you have won. I am now gift wrapping a box of toiletries for you. Although in this society, that might be great, actually. Am I right? Stuff's hard to come by sometimes. But we know the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, 6, that we all have gone astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way. The Lord put the punishment of our iniquity upon him him referring to Jesus theologian John Stott wrote this and I wanted to bring this to your attention in his book the cross of Christ he says for there is blood on our hands before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us leading us to faith and worship we have to see it as something done by us leading us to repentance. Only the man who is prepared to own his share of the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. And that brings us to our first point this morning. Our righteousness comes through Jesus. Once again, we are looking at the beauty of the blessing that comes through Jesus. 
But I want to stop for a second because there's two things that we can draw from the text right here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The first is this idea of blessing. Blessing is intrinsically connected to righteousness. You can see this throughout all of Old Testament scriptures. Jesus' audience would have understood this. I am confident that Jesus' audience would have probably thought of Psalms chapter 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, he meditates both day and night. This psalm is a comparison and contrast between the righteous and the wicked. There is a direct connection between a righteous person seeking after Christ, seeking after God, and the wicked person turning away. Our blessing comes through Christ. But the word blessed, it actually means the same thing in Matthew 5 as it does in Psalm 1. It means a recipient of divine favor. We like to call this grace. For it is the grace of God, an unmerited favor bestowed from one to another. You see, Jesus was not up in heaven looking down on earth and man, man, they're really trying and doing a good job. I'm gonna go ahead, I'm gonna give them a I'm gonna give them an attaboy. I'm gonna give them a help. No. Scripture tells us that we were astray. We were going our own way. Romans, Paul, refers to us as enemies of God. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the point to take is that the blessing comes from Jesus because Jesus demonstrated his compassion, his mercy, and his love by coming down on this earth to live that life we could not live. To pay that penalty, that debt we had owed that we could not pay. Our faith must be wrapped up in Jesus. We must keep our eyes on Jesus because through that we can see that the righteousness that we hunger and thirst for is only found in Christ it's not in the good deeds that I can do because the bad outweigh them it's in the good deed done by Christ there's one of my favorite movies actually it's probably my all time favorite movie uh, it's called The Quiet Man, and it stars uh, John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. And confession time, my wife knows this, I had a huge crush on Maureen O'Hara. Like, I wanted a sassy redhead uh, when I grew up, uh, but God blessed me with a sassy brunette instead, which I'm super thankful for, okay? But in that movie, here's some trivia for you. That movie was made in a little town in Ireland. They call it Innisfree in the movie. 
I can't remember the name of the, the town itself, but it's not what it's actually called. That town did not have electricity. And they needed it to make the movie. And so Republic Studios, uh, the, the movie picture company that made that movie, they paid to install electricity throughout the entire town. And the people were ecstatic. Right? This was something they had never experienced in their own town. This was something brand new to them. This was exciting times for them. They were really happy to have electricity in their town until they learned they had to pay for it. Once they found out that the bill came due, they were upset. They were angry because of the price they had to pay for something that they thought was so good, they actually held a town meeting and demanded they take electricity away. And they did for a long time. That's the same way it is with our own indiscretions and sins, our transgressions. We do what we want to do, dang it, until the bill comes due. And then we're scrounging to try and find an answer. The reality is, Ephesians 2.8, I'm going to turn there. I'm going to read this to you. Because this is the the fundamental crux of our faith. Remember, if you're having trouble finding it, Galatians eat pork chops? Or Gentiles eat pork chops? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Remember that divine favor we talked about? That blessing, the blessing of righteous people? That grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. The righteousness that comes as that divine gift or favor it is only found only found as a gift from Jesus. When it talks about faith, we oftentimes conflate this idea or understanding with something completely wrong. Faith is not hoping for the best. You realize that, right? It's not playing the odds. You're not sitting there doing math about the probability of something coming true. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. And that totally clarifies what that is, right? No. What does that mean? Let me tell you. Faith itself is a gift of God. And it is something like working out. The more you do it, the stronger it gets. So if you want to have the faith of a mustard seed, exercise your faith. And what I mean by that is don't, don't hope for the best. Don't play the odds. Look to the author and the finisher 
of our faith. That is Jesus. Because I tell you, when your affections are set on Jesus, your faith will grow. Whatever object you place your affections on will determine the strength of your faith. Let the desire of your heart be Christ. This word for righteousness is the same word as righteous, right? So Matthew chapter 5 says righteousness, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Psalms says the righteous. Righteousness is the seeking and pursuit of something that is divinely inspired. Why, why do I say it that way? I could give you the Webster's definition. Webster's definition for righteousness is just being an upright person. But if you don't throw in the divinely inspired portion, you're missing the point. I can be a good person and spiritually be bankrupt. I could be a good person and spiritually be desolate. But Jesus is calling us to pursue him. Because when we put our faith and trust in him, it is not our righteousness, but his. Christ imputes big $10 theology word. But basically it's like this. And just so you know, all analogies break down. Okay? So don't take this too far. But if I were standing before God today and God were to say, okay, we're going to measure your righteousness. If I am not in Christ, I have to stand on the scale of righteousness and be found wanting. But if I am hidden my life in Christ, when I go to step on the scale, Jesus will put his arm out and say, no, no, I got this. And he will step on that scale for me. See, in and of myself, I am not righteous. Ecclesiastes 7.10 tells us, there is none who is righteous who continually does good. Jeremiah tells us, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all else. Jesus tells us it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of him, for out of the mouth the heart speaks. Time and time again, we're talking about a heart issue, not a behavior issue. Although the, the Jews that Jesus was talking to at the time would have probably equated with a, a right standing under the law, Jesus is driving home the point that not any of you can hold that standard he's setting the foundation expressing their deepest need and they don't even realize it your need is a righteousness that comes only from god jesus is that righteousness and from that righteousness we find our next point that our satisfaction is complete in jesus look at that verse 
for they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. What is satisfied? Satisfied is that need or desire for righteousness, right? There's a need or desire within our hearts. The term hunger and thirst is not one of those that talks about just, I'm a little bit hungry, I could eat something. It's starving. You were made for a reason. And apart from that reason, there's an emptiness, a longing, an aching. You can't fill it with money, drugs, alcohol, friends, amazing hobbies like rock climbing or woodworking or video gaming. There's nothing in this life whether good or bad, that can fill that void in your heart. It must be a void filled by being satisfied in Jesus. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 37, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's not saying if I go to church on Sunday and I do the right thing and I help out with youth or I help out with children's ministry or I help out with whatever ministries are in the church that, you know, I'm doing God's work. I'm seeking Him. So therefore, He's going to give me that new car. That new job, that promotion I want, it's coming. My friends, that is heresy. What He's saying is this. If you earnestly seek Jesus... Those fleshly, worldly desires will die. And he will birth within you the desire that he has for you. And I promise you, money-back guarantee, God's desires for your life are greater than you could ever imagine. Because here's the reality. Maybe we want a new car, but the car will break. Maybe we want a new house, but that roof will give out. Maybe we want that new job, but the economy is trash, and we can't guarantee that job's going to be around for a while. There's no guarantee with the things that we desire, but let me tell you this. Seeking Jesus, when you get laid off, there's hope. When your child is in NICU, and you're not sure if they're going to survive, there's hope. When your wife gets an infection that almost kills her, there's hope. Whatever thing you're dealing with that is in the negative, because we all have those at times, there's hope. There's joy. There's peace. There's something that is unmistakably divine in those dark times that cannot be attributed to anything other than the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you know, say amen. And if you don't, come talk to me after church. Because the reality is, life is not guaranteed to be a bed of roses and sunshine and all those great bonbons we love to eat. There's struggles, there's trials, there's difficulties, there's issues that we have. But our satisfaction, it comes through Christ. 
That joy, that peace can only come through intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Seek Him. The Bible commands us, seek Him while He is near, while He may be found. I challenge you this morning, if you have a relationship with Jesus, seek Him more. We will never have enough Jesus in our life until we are standing face to face going, I love you, man. I love you, Jesus. Thank you for what you did. And, and if you don't know Jesus, don't wait. I, I have this obsession with a theologian by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he's phenomenal. If you have a chance to read any of his stuff, um, it's not so much his theology that I love. I love some of his theology, but the reason why I love him is I read the biography on him and his heart for Jesus and his heart for evangelism, and that kind of resonates with me. So his heart for reaching the lost really just kind of connects to my heart. But one of the reasons why I love him the most is because if you listen to his story, he's beloved now. He was reviled when he was here. He had one of the fastest growing churches in London and other pastors hated him. Little known fact, or maybe it's not, I don't know. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he was very intentional about standing on the inerrancy of Scripture in a time when nobody was doing it. And it was that stance that right there that got him kicked out of his Baptist convention in England. He was voted out by a majority. Everybody, minus like four or five, said, no, we got to get this guy out of here. He is bad news. And this was before the time of what we like to call textual criticism. So just so you know, it has gotten worse. And I'm going to tell you, I read an article the other day from Barna Research, and it talked about how the number of pastors, not people, pastors, who stand and preach on Sunday mornings, who do believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, it's less than 50%. The number they quoted was 37%. And the number of people who work with teenagers is less than 30%. It was like 28-something. This should be a charge for us to wake up and recognize that we're not living in the same old, same old. And we're going to have to start standing on biblical truth. And I know that we just had a, an amazing week where Roe versus Wade was overturned. But we can't stop. We have to recognize that, yes, okay, we've now been able to take one step closer to saving innocent babies' lives. But I challenge us to think, can we help the moms? Because it's not just one or the other. It must be both. We must work with a compassion because what we need more than anything else 
is the gospel to go out into our neighborhoods because this is not a policy issue. This is a sin issue. The only way to correct sin is through salvation in Jesus Christ. So here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Salvation is all of grace, which means free, gratis, for nothing. I am asking nothing of you today in the name of God or of man. It is not my intent to make my requirement at you by your hands. But I come in God's name to bring you a free gift, which it shall be present and eternal joy for you to receive. Open the door. Let my pleadings enter. Friend, if you are listening to this today and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, let me implore you as just a nobody trying to share with everybody about the one somebody who can save anybody. You are never too far from Christ for salvation. It is just a choice to acknowledge that He is the Lord. That we humbly come to Him and say, take me as I am, but do not leave me where I am. Because that is the mercy and the grace, and that is our righteous act to seek the one who gives us righteousness. And brothers and sisters, if you're here today, man, this should be an anthem for us. Let us walk away from this morning praying, Holy Spirit, move my heart. Move my heart towards righteousness. Move my heart towards compassion. If we do not first recognize our own need for Jesus and then mourn for our own, but also the sin of those around us. If we see someone around us and their sin makes us feel icky before it makes us feel compassion, if we are appalled before we are brokenhearted, my friend, we are the problem. We must recognize that standing before us is an image bearer of God in desperate, dire need of salvation. We must love them by being truthful with them, with compassion, with mercy, and with grace. Let us walk away from here seeking righteousness, the righteousness that is only found in Jesus. And let us be a beacon of hope to those around us that that righteousness is available to them too. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you and I thank you for an opportunity to share your word. Lord, I pray that even as I walk away from here, that you will just draw my heart by the power of the Holy Spirit towards your righteousness. Let us walk away changed. Let us walk away knowing that our nation has a sin problem. Albuquerque has a sin problem. Rio Rancho has a sin problem. Let us be beacons of hope, 
pointing to Jesus' sacrificial death on their behalf, on our behalf. God, burden our hearts as a church for the lost. Give us a compassion that is divine and not of our own making. Lord, I thank you for the cross, for paying that price that I could not pay, for living that sinless life for me, dying on that cross. Lord, thank you for the resurrection, the hope that we find. Jesus, I want to know you, as Paul writes, that I may partake in your resurrection. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.